<clears throat> uh, good morning, everyone. This is December 27th, 2020. Um, I'm going to give a uh, Dharma talk today. You know, it would have been nice if I'd thought of a title. <clears throat> but uh, I'm going to start out um, reading an article entitled, Your Brain is Not for Thinking. And uh, it was written by a woman named Lisa Feldman Barrett. Uh, she's a neuroscientist at Northeastern University. <clears throat> I think pretty, pretty well-respected. Um, she wrote an article that I found, that I saw in the New York Times, entitled, Your Brain is Not for Thinking. Uh, it was published on November 23rd, 2020. And I just want to uh, launch right into it here. <clears throat> so she says, 500 million years ago, a tiny sea creature changed the course of history. It became the first predator. It somehow sensed the presence of another creature nearby, propelled or wriggled its way over, and ate it. This new activity of hunting started an evolutionary arms race. Over millions of years, both predators and prey evolved more complex bodies that could sense and move more effectively to catch or elude other creatures. <clears throat> And eventually, some creatures evolved a command center to run those complex bodies. We call it a brain. So this story of how brains evolved, while admittedly just a sketch, draws attention to a key insight about human beings that is too often overlooked. Oops. <clears throat> your brain's most important job isn't thinking. It's running the systems of your body to keep you alive and well. According to recent findings in neuroscience, even, your br even when your brain does produce conscious thoughts and feelings, they are more in service to the needs of managing your body than you realize. And in stressful times like right now, this curious perspective on your mental life might actually help to lessen your anxieties. <clears throat> Much of your brain's activity happens outside your awareness. In every moment, your brain must figure out your body's needs for the next moment and execute a plan to fill those needs in advance. For example, each morning as you wake, your brain anticipates the energy you'll need to drag your sorry body out of bed and start your day. It proactively floods your bloodstream with the hormone, hormone cortisol, which helps make glucose available for quick energy. Your brain runs your body on something like a budget. Of course, a financial budget tracks money as it's earned and spent. The budget for your body tracks resources like water, salt, and glucose as you gain and lose them. Each action that spends resources, such as standing up, running, and learning, is like a withdrawal from your account. Actions that replenish your resources, such as eating and sleeping, are like deposits. 
<clears throat> she goes on, the scientific name for body budgeting is allostasis. It means automatically predicting and preparing to meet the body's needs before they arise. Consider what happens when you're thirsty and drink a glass of water. The water takes about 20 minutes to reach your bloodstream, but you feel less thirsty within seconds. What relieves your thirst so quickly? Well, your brain does. It has learned from past experiences that water is a deposit to your body budget that will hydrate you, so your brain quenches your thirst long before the water has any direct effect on your blood. <clears throat> this budgetary account of how the brain works may seem plausible when it comes to your bodily functions. It may seem less natural to view your mental life as a series of deposits and withdrawals, but your own experiences rarely a guide to your brain's inner workings. Every thought you have, every feeling of happiness or anger or awe you experience, every kindness you extend, and every insult you bear or sling is part of your brain's calculations as it anticipates and budgets your metabolic needs. This view of the brain has many implications for understanding human beings. So often, for example, we conceive of ourselves in mental terms separate from the physical. A bad stomach ache that follows an indulgent meal may send us to the gastroenterologist, but if we experience that same ache during a messy divorce, we may head to a psychotherapist instead. At the gastroenterologist's office, we experience our discomfort as an underlying physical problem. At the therapist's office, we experience the same discomfort as anxiety, a psychological disturbance physically manifested. <clears throat> In body budgeting terms, however, this distinction between mental and physical isn't meaningful. Anxiety does not cause stomach aches. Rather, feelings of anxiety and stomach aches are both ways that human brains make sense of physical discomfort. There is no such thing as a purely mental cause because every mental experience has roots in the physical budgeting of your body. This is one reason physical actions like taking a deep breath or getting more sleep can be surprisingly helpful in addressing problems we traditionally view as psychological. <clears throat> I think this is something that most people who've been practicing Zen for a while resonate with. So much of being awake and being aware is being aware of the body, what's going on. Being conscious of those little discomforts or thrills that rise in the body. being open to them, not prejudging them, and as we'll see as we go along, not acting unconsciously without really knowing what's going on. So she goes on, 
we're all living in challenging times and we're all at risk for disrupted body budgets. If you feel weary from the pandemic and you're battling a lack of motivation, consider your situation from a body budgeting perspective. Your burden may feel lighter if you understand your discomfort as something physical. When an unpleasant thought pops into your head, like I can't take this craziness anymore, ask yourself body budgeting questions. Did I get enough sleep last night? Am I hydrated or dehydrated? Should I take a walk, call a friend, because I could use a deposit or two in my body budget? <clears throat> this is a, a, a common sense concept that I ran into uh, when I was uh, going to a lot of AA meetings. Uh, in AA, they have a little acronym, HALT, uh, <clears throat> which means, which stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are situations where an alcoholic is, of course, more likely to relapse. And uh, they're all things that we can, can, when we are aware of them, when we realize that's what's going on, we can do something about it. We have a chance to, <clears throat> as uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett puts it, readjust our body budget. She goes on and says, I'm not saying you can snap your fingers and dissolve deep misery or sweep away depression with a change of perspective. I'm suggesting that it's possible to acknowledge what your brain is actually doing and take some comfort from it. Your brain is not for thinking. Everything that it conjures, from thoughts to emotions to dreams, is in the service of body budgeting. This perspective, applied judiciously, can be a source of resilience in challenging times. <clears throat> so I read that article and, and uh, was kind of struck by it and interested in Lisa Feldman Barrett. And uh, so I poked around and uh, she's the author of a couple books. Uh, and one of them that I went out and bought uh, is called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. <clears throat> Be nice to go through the whole book, but uh, I've sort of learned my lesson over time. And I just want to uh, take you through some of what she has to say uh, in one of those seven and a half lessons. So I'm going to turn to uh, the book, and this is lesson number four, entitled, Your Brain Predicts Almost Everything You Do. And she tells a story. This is kind of fascinating. A few years ago, I received an email from a man who served in the Rhodesian Army in southern Africa in the 1970s before the end of apartheid. He'd been drafted against his will, handed a uniform and a rifle, and ordered to hunt down guerrilla fighters. To make matters worse, before the draft, He'd been an advocate for the same guerrillas that he was now required to treat as the enemy. He was deep in the forest one morning, conducting practice exercises with his small squad of soldiers when he detected movement ahead of him. With a pounding heart, he saw a long line of guerrilla fighters dressed in camouflage and carrying machine guns. Instinctively, he raised his rifle, flipped off the safety catch, squinted down the barrel, and aimed at the leader, 
who was carrying an AK-47 assault rifle. Suddenly, he felt a hand on his shoulder. Don't shoot, whispered his buddy behind him. It's just a boy. He slowly lowered his rifle, looked again at the scene, and was astonished by what he now saw. A boy, perhaps ten years old, leading a long line of cows. And the dreaded AK-47, it was a simple herding stick. <clears throat> For years afterward, this man struggled to understand the unsettling episode. How had he managed to missee what was right in front of his eyes and nearly kill a child? What was wrong with his brain? As it turns out, nothing was wrong with his brain. It was actually working exactly as it should have. Scientists used to believe that the brain's visual system operated sort of like a camera. <clears throat> this is how we all tend to look at the world. Detecting the visual information out there, in quotation marks, in the world, and constructing a photograph-like image in the mind. Today we know better. Your view of the world is no photograph. It's a construction of your brain that is so fluid and so convincing that it, appear, it appears to be accurate, but sometimes it's not. To understand why it can be perfectly normal to see a grown guerrilla fighter with a rifle when you're looking at a 10-year-old boy with a stick, let's consider the situation from the brain's point of view. From the moment you're born to the moment you draw your last breath, your brain is stuck in a dark, silent box called your skull. Day in and day out, it continually receives sense data from the outside world via your eyes, ears, nose, and other sensory organs. This data does not arrive in the form of meaningful sights, smells, sounds, and other sensations that most of us, of, of us experience. It's just a barrage of light waves, chemicals, and changes in air pressure with no inherent significance. Faced with these ambiguous scraps of sense data, your brain must somehow figured out, figure out what to do next. Remember, your brain's most important job is to control your body so you stay alive and well. Your brain must somehow make meaning from the onslaught of sense data that it's receiving so you don't fall down a staircase or become lunch for some wild beast. How does the brain decipher the sense data so it knows how to proceed? If it used only the ambiguous information that is immediately present, then you'd be swimming in a sea of uncertainty, flailing around until you figured out the best response. But luckily, your brain has an additional source of information at its disposal, memory. Your brain can draw on your lifetime of past experiences, things that have happened to you personally, and things that you've learned from friends, teachers, books, videos, and other sources. In the blink of an eye, your brain reconstructs bits and pieces of past experience as your neurons pass electrochemical information back and forth in an ever-shifting complex network. Your brain assembles these bits into memories to infer the meaning of the sense data and to guess what to do about it. Your past experiences include not only what happened in the world around you, but also what happened inside your body. Was your heart beating quickly? Were you breathing heavily? 
Your brain asks itself in every moment, figuratively speaking, the last time I encountered a similar situation, when my body was in a similar state, what did I do next? The answer need not be a perfect match for your situation, just something close enough to give your brain an appropriate plan of action that helps you survive and even thrive. <clears throat> and I'd add here that it can be completely maladaptive. It isn't something that will make you happy uh, or fair or just. It's just keeping you alive. This explains how the brain plans your body's next action. How does your brain also conjure high-fidelity experiences like guerrilla fighters in the forest out of scraps of raw data from the, from the outside world? How does it create feelings of terror from a thundering heart? Once again, your brain recreates the past from memory by asking itself, the last time I encountered a similar situation, when my body was in a similar state, and was preparing for this particular action, what did I see next? What did I feel next? The answer becomes your experience, that is, your experience in the moment. In other words, your brain combines information from outside and inside your head to produce everything you see, hear, smell, taste, and feel. <clears throat> to anyone who's delved into Buddhist teaching, this is not too surprising. Somehow, without the benefit of neuroscience, the Buddha long ago <clears throat> had insight into the way that we construct our reality. It's kind of fascinating that everyone who looks for truth comes to the same truth. Your brain, she goes on, your brain actively constructs your experiences. Every morning you wake up and experience a world around you full of sensations. You might feel the bed sheets against your skin. Maybe you hear sounds that woke you, like an alarm buzzing or birds chirping or your spouse snoring. Perhaps you smell coffee brewing. These sensations seem to sail right into your head as if your eyes, nose, mouth, ears, and skin were transparent windows on the world but you don't sense with your sensory organs. You sense with your brain. What you see is some combination of what's out there in the world and what's constructed by your brain. What you hear is some combination of what's out there and what's in your brain, and likewise for your other senses. In much the same way, your brain also constructs what you feel inside your body, your aches and jitters, and other inner sensations are some combination of what's going on in your brain and what's actually happening within your lungs and heart and gut and muscles and so on. Your brain also adds information from your past experiences to guess what those sensations mean. For instance, when people haven't slept enough and are fatigued or low energy, they may feel hungry because they've been hungry before when their energy was low and may think that a quick snack will boost their energy. In fact, they're just tired from lack of sleep. This constructed experience of hunger may be one reason why people gain unwanted weight. <clears throat> Most people know uh, lack of sleep actually is a, a contributing cause to weight gain. 
<clears throat> she says, now we can unravel while our, why, why our soldier friend saw guerrilla fighters instead of a shepherd boy with cows. His brain asked, based on what I know about this war, and given that I am deep in the woods with my comrades, gripping a rifle, heart pounding, and there are moving figures ahead and maybe something pointy, what am I likely to see next? And the result was guerrilla fighters. In this situation, the stuff inside and outside his head didn't match, and the inside stuff prevailed. <clears throat> Most of the time, when you look at cows, you see cows. <clears throat> Actually reminds me of uh, something that Ken Kraft once told me. Um, old members may remember Ken, uh, center member and taught at Lehigh University and uh, was quite fluent in Japanese and spent a lot of time in Japan. And uh, he said occasionally he would speak <clears throat> sort of unexpectedly from the point of view of the Japanese. He would speak to them in what he said, and I believe him, was impeccably pronounced Japanese. And they would look at him, he used to say, with total lack of comprehension. They couldn't hear a thing he was saying. He said it was as if a cow started speaking to you. You're so stunned by it that you can't even hear what's going on. Again, it's the brain's predictions getting in the way of what's actually going on. I read somewhere that when uh, Columbus first uh, came to this country, <clears throat> came to the Caribbean, I guess, not sure if it was Columbus or some other, uh, might have been the people on the Mayflower. Anyway, ships were all in the harbor and uh, the natives uh, came there and they couldn't see the ships because they'd never seen such a thing. <clears throat> anyway, brain is strange. She says, you've almost certainly had an experience like the soldiers where the information inside your head triumphs over the da data from the outside world. Have you ever seen a friend's face in a crowd, but when you looked again, you realized it was a different person? Have you ever felt your cell phone vibrate in your pocket when it didn't? Have you ever had a song playing in your head that you couldn't get rid of? Neuroscientists like to say that your day-to-day -day experience is a carefully controlled hallucination. Constrained by the world and your body, but ultimately constructed by your brain. It's not the kind of hallucination that sends you to the hospital. It's an everyday kind of hallucination that creates all your experiences and guides your actions. It's the normal way that your brain gives meaning to your sense data, and you're almost always unaware that it's happening. <clears throat> I realize that this, com this description defies common sense, but there's more. This whole constructive process happens predictively. Scientists are now fairly certain that your brain actually begins to sense the moment-to-moment -moment changes in the world before those light waves, chemicals, and other sense data hit your brain. The same is true for moment-to-moment -moment changes in your body. Your brain begins to sense them before the relevant data arrives to your organs, hormones, and various bodily systems. You don't experience your senses this way, but it's how your brain navigates the world and controls your body.
<clears throat> so different from the way we see the world. In a very real sense, she says, predictions are just your brain having a conversation with itself. A bunch of neurons make their best guess about what will happen in the immediate future based on whatever combination of past and present your brain is currently conjuring. conjuring. Those neurons then announce that guess to neurons in other brain areas, changing their firing. Meanwhile, since data from the world and your body injects itself into the conversation, confirming or not the prediction that you'll experience as your reality. Skipping a little bit. So your brain issues predictions and checks them against the sense of data coming in, coming from the world and your body. And what happens next still astounds me, even as a neuroscientist. If your brain has predicted well, then your neurons are already firing in a pattern that matches the incoming sense data. That means this sense data itself has no further use beyond confirming your brain's predictions. What you see, hear, smell, and taste in the world and feel in your body in that moment are completely constructed in your head. By prediction, your brain has efficiently prepared you to act. Here's what I mean. Suppose when the soldier's brain predicted a line of guerrilla fighters up ahead, the fighters were actually there. From his brain's perspective, the real fighters confirmed the prediction because his brain had already constructed the sights, sounds, and smells of the fighters, adjusted his body budget, and prepared his body to act. In this case, his predictions prepared him to raise his rifle and shoot. <clears throat> of course, in the real story, she points out, that was the wrong prediction. His brain had two options. One option was to incorporate the sense data from the outside world, update his predictions, and construct a new corrected experience of a boy and his cows. <clears throat> The brain's second, <clears throat> the soldier's brain chose the other option, however. His brain stuck with its prediction in spite of the sense data from the world. This can happen for many reasons, one being that his brain predicted his life was on the line. And here she makes the point, brains aren't wired for accuracy, they're wired to keep us alive. And we could add here that in situations of stress, um, especially if it's a life and death matter, but even if it's overwhelming emotion rising up in the, in the mind or fear, um, regardless of the objective reality of the situation, we can easily completely missee what's going on. It's the whole problem in, uh, in the law and trials with witness testimony. It's amazing how in those charged situations, five different people see five different things. And no one is looking at an objective picture. Nobody sees the raw reality. It's all constructed in our brains. And also, the fact that our brains are wired to keep us alive, we, we have this feeling that our brain should be wired to help us find happiness or, or to be fair, but really that's not <clears throat> what our brains are doing. 
That's what we bring to the situation, assuming those are our values. Okay. <clears throat> then she says, now here's the final nail in the coffin of common sense. All this predicting happens backward from the way we experience it. You and I seem to sense the first and second act. You see an enemy and then raise your rifle. But in your brain, sensing actually comes second. Your brain is wired to prepare for action first, like moving your index figure onto a trigger and making body budgeting changes to support that movement. It's also wired to root those predictions to your sensory systems, which predict the feeling of cold steel on your fingertip and your racing heartbeat. In the case of our soldier friend, his brain heard rustling leaves, moved his hands on the gun, and guided itself to see enemies that weren't present. Your brain is wired to initiate your actions before you're aware of them. Remember hearing long ago that uh, when you stand on a diving board and jump into the water, before you decide to jump within your body, the muscles and, and uh, <clears throat> your muscles basically are tensing up and making that, that action uh, possible. So in a way, your body has decided to jump before you give the go-ahead. <clears throat> this is kind of a big deal. After all, in everyday life, you do many things by choice, right? At least it seems that way. For example, you chose to open this book and read these words. But the brain is a predicting organ. It launches your new sex set of actions based on your past experience and current situation, and it does so outside of your awareness. In other words, your actions are under the control of your memory and your environment. <clears throat> Does this mean you have no free will? Who's responsible for your actions? <laughs> Philosophers and other scholars have debated the existence of free will pretty much since the invention of philosophy. It's not likely that we will settle the debate here. Nevertheless, we can highlight a piece of the puzzle that's often ignored. Think about the last time you acted on autopilot. Maybe you bit your nails. Maybe your brain-to-mouth connection was too well-oiled and you muttered something regrettable to a friend. Maybe you looked away from an, um, from an engaging movie and discovered that you'd downed an entire jumbo bag of red Twizzlers. In these moments, your brain employed its predictive powers to launch your actions and you had no feeling of agency. Could you have exercised more control and changed your behavior in the moment? Maybe, but it would have been difficult. Were you responsible for these actions? More than you might think. <clears throat> the predict of course, you can. <laughs> One of the things I would point out here is all those actions happen when you're on autopilot. And one of the abilities we have is that we can spend more of our life not on autopilot. We can be more aware. <clears throat> uh, we can develop the habit of not succumbing to habit. But even, even granted that no matter how hard we, we work at it, there are going to be things that we do on autopilot. Um, 
she makes this point. The predictions that initiate your actions don't appear out of nowhere. If you hadn't chomped on your nails as a kid, you probably wouldn't bite them now. If you'd never learned the regret regrettable words you tossed at your friend, you wouldn't say them now. If you'd never developed a taste for licorice, well, you get the idea. Your brain predicts and prepares your actions using your past experiences. If you could magically reach back in time and change your past, your brain would predict differently today and you might act different, differently and experience the world differently as a result. <clears throat> it's impossible to change your past, but right now, with some effort, you can change how your brain will predict the future. You can invest a little time and energy to learn new ideas. You can curate new experiences. You can try new activities. Everything you learn today seeds your brain to predict differently tomorrow. <clears throat> Here's an example. All of us have had a nervous feeling before a test, but for some people this anxiety is crippling. Based on their past experiences of taking tests, their brains predict and launch a hammering heartbeat and sweaty hands and they're unable to complete the test. If this happens enough, they fail courses or even drop out of school. But here's the thing. A hammering heartbeat is not necessarily anxiety. Research has shown that students can learn to experience their physical sensations not as anxiety, but as energized determination. And when they do, they perform better on tests. That determination seeds their brains to predict differently in the future so they can get their butterflies flying in formation. If they practice this skill enough, they can pass a test, perhaps pass their courses, and even graduate, which has a huge impact on their future earning potential. <clears throat> I uh, was talking to someone that we all know once, and uh, he said that, I think it was in therapy, that he finally came to realize that what he experienced as excitement was what other people identified as anxiety. Just <clears throat> through good fortune or whatever, uh, it had always appeared to him that way. It's just, it's just so interesting that even beyond the level of conscious thoughts, you know, thinking ridiculous things, which of course we all do, uh, just our, our basic, what seems like not even a thought, it's just obvious, I'm anxious as hell. But what's really going on is I'm having a physical reaction to my body based on what's going on or what's not going on. <clears throat> and it's totally arbitrary how I interpret it. Obviously, the body is aroused and wants us to take some sort of action, but it isn't necessarily to panic. And we can change that. Uh, she talks about having reading different books, having different ideas, learning new things. One of the things that we can learn is how to be present. How to know that our heart is hammering when it first starts. So much of uh, our sort of losing control and going astray is based on keeping unpleasant feelings and thoughts in the background. Uh, not even really being aware that something's off. 
and by the time it's really gotten going, it's very hard to control, very hard to do anything about it. Anger is a great example. Uh, it's so easy to go from zero to 60, but it does take a little while. The anger rises, and if we're really present when it happens, we have a lot more agency than when all of a sudden we're full-blown into the anger and we're convinced that it's justified and we're striking out. So uh, <clears throat> basically we're, we're working. I think my, my take from all of this is we're working with an instrument, with our brain, with, which then means with our reality, that isn't really laid out the way we think it should be and the way that would be most conducive to our happiness. So why is that? Why is it that <clears throat> our brain doesn't seem to take a great interest in our being happy? Well, we've already touched on a little bit. Our brain is basically concerned with keeping us alive. And uh, you can even go farther than that. And I'm going to read just a little bit from... Uh, Robert Wright, the guy who wrote the book Why Buddhism is True. I did a Dharma talk on this book <clears throat> some time ago. And he talks a little bit, this is a little section called Why Pleasure Fades. And he's uh, dealing with something that we'll actually be talking about later. Um, goes by various names. But I think a good one is dukkha, suffering. Basically the fact that uh, we chase after good feelings and they don't satisfy us. Why is that? So he says, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to explain why this sort of distortion would be built into human anticipation. <clears throat> the particular distortion he's talking about here is anticipating eating a sugar donut, <clears throat> which sounds just great. It just takes an evolution... It doesn't take a rocket scientist, it just takes an evolutionary biologist, or for that matter, anyone willing to spend a little time thinking about how evolution works. So here's the basic logic. We were designed, in quotation marks, by natural selection to do certain things that helped our ancestors get their genes into the next generation. Things like eating, having sex, earning the esteem of other people, and outdoing rivals. I say designed in quotation marks because, again, natural selection isn't a conscious, intelligent designer, but an unconscious process. Still, natural selection does create organisms that look as if they're the product of a conscious designer, a designer who kept fiddling with them to make them effective gene propagators. So as a kind of thought experiment, it's legitimate to ask of natural selection as a designer, to think of natural selection as a designer, and put yourself in its shoes and ask, if you were designing organisms to be good at spreading their genes, how would you get them to pursue the goals that further this cause? In other words, granted that eating, having sex, impressing peers, and besting rivals helped our ancestors spread their genes, how exactly would you design their brains to get them to pursue these goals? I submit that at least three basic principles of design would make sense. One, achieving these goals should bring pleasure, since animals, including humans, tend to pursue things that bring pleasure. Two, the pleasure shouldn't last forever. 
After all, if the pleasure didn't subside, we'd never seek it again. Our first meal would be our last because hunger would never return. So too with sex, a single act of intercourse and then a lifetime of lying there basking in the afterglow. There's no way to get a lot, that's no way to get a lot of genes into the next generation. Three, the animal's brain should focus more on one, the fact that pleasure will accompany the reaching of a goal than on two, the fact that the pleasure will dissipate shortly thereafter. After all, if you fo focus on one, you'll pursue things like food and sex and social status with unalloyed gusto, whereas if you focus on two, you could start feeling ambivalence. You might, for example, start asking what the point is of so fiercely pursuing pleasure if the pleasure will wear off shortly after you get it and leave you hungering for more. Before you know it, you'll be full of ennui and wishing you'd majored in philosophy. <clears throat> and he goes on, but I'll, I'll turn from that and get to really um, what I'm eager to talk about, and that is, okay, given that we're designed this way, what do we do? This is kind of the uh, second and third noble truths. Life is suffering. That's the first noble truth. <clears throat> the cause of our suffering is ego desire or craving or thirst, which has been pretty well outlined by uh, this neurobiologist and evolutionary psychologist. And then the third noble truth, that the cessation of desire is the end of suffering. So how do we do that? How do we get out of the treadmill that we're on? And for that, I want to turn to uh, another guy, just another view on it. Uh, he's a uh, modern-day Stoic, and his name is William Irvine. He's a professor at Wright State University, and he appeared on uh, the podcast Hidden Brain, which is hosted by Shankar Vedantam. And this particular podcast was aired fairly recently, <clears throat> how I came across it, and uh, it's entitled Minimizing Pain, Maximizing Joy. And there are uh, a number of strategies, um, because time is limited, I can't get into all of them, but I'd like to highlight a few that, uh, uh, that William Irvine, Bill Irvine, uh, suggests that uh, are used in Stoic practice to help us deal with uh, difficult feelings, difficult thoughts, difficult situations. <clears throat> Just sort of to run through some of them quickly, um, I wanna I wanna hit on the Stoic practice of negative visualization. So what this is is. finding a way to deal with the fact that everything is temporary, that nothing lasts. Um, <laughs> the basic teaching of the Buddha. 
everything that we're struggling to get, we're going to lose, uh, either because it's going to change or because we're going to change. Certainly, eventually, we're going to die. So how do we how do we deal with what we're not really wanting to accept? And uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, let me start here. He he points out that we're we're on what he calls the hedonic treadmill. So uh, <clears throat> Shankar Vedantam, I've got a transcript of this podcast, uh, pretty cool. He says, uh, we've talked at length on Hidden Brain in various episodes about the phenomenon of the hedonic treadmill, which is you have wonderful things happen to you, good things come into your life, and very quickly we get habituated to them and we fail to see them for what they are. We start to take them for granted. How would a Stoic accentuate the positive especially when the positive is all around her all the time, where she's seeing it all the time. So he says, Irvine says, yeah, so a Stoic understands, they didn't use this term for it, but they understand the hedonic treadmill. I like to rephrase it as the gap theory of happiness. A lot of people are unhappy because they recognize the existence of a gap between what they have and what they want. And, of course, as we pointed out, that's built right in, this gap between what you have and what you want. They're convinced that happiness will come to them if only they can raise that one level and get the thing they want. And, in fact, that's true. They are happy for a while, for a few minutes, for an hour, for days, and then they're right back where they were before because they've discovered that there's another level that's even higher. And they think, if only I could reach that level, I would at last be happy. The insight which the Stoics had, and by the way, the Buddhists had, thank you for pointing that out, <clears throat> and there have been a number of other groups in history that have had the same insight, is that there is a second way to close the gap. What you need to do is learn how to want what you already have. Because then there is no gap to close. You're already there. Okay? But how do you accomplish that? And the Stoics said, you do these certain exercises, these certain psychological strategies, so you can convince yourself to want the things you already have. <clears throat> and they go through the strategy of uh, realizing that things could be so much worse. And uh, he, he identifies that as negative visualization. Um, in the, the time they talk about this, they mention, of course, the... Uh, situation with the pandemic and the fact that one of the things we can do to help ourselves uh, get clear, <clears throat> get a little distance, get a little uh, uh, understanding of the situation is to look at how much worse it could be. Look at some of the other pandemics that have happened in history. Or they take the case of the Blitz in London when uh, not only were you, you, rather than being isolated in your home, you were forced to leave your home every night and go into a, a bomb shelter and then come back and see if your home had been destroyed or not. <clears throat> then there are also, of course, pandemics where the mortality rate, rather than being 1% or 2% as it is for this one, is more like 20% or 30%.
But beyond that, beyond uh, looking at how things could be worse, um, he suggests try to visualize if your negative visualization is this process in which you give yourself a few seconds to imagine the thing that you value. And that could be a thing or it could be a person, it could be a situation. Imagine that it could be a job. Imagine that the thing you value somehow disappears from your life. So you don't dwell on losing the things that you value. You don't dwell on them, but you allow yourself to have a flickering thought about it. You imagine and you try to visualize your life with that person or that thing missing. Just a few seconds and then you get back to life. And when you next encounter the person or thing, uh, it will be an interesting phenomenon that you will probably notice. And that is that you will, you will appreciate them. You're happy to see them. Well, I do this periodically a few times a day. My wife knows that I've been up to negative visualization when she hears me shout out from the back bedroom, that's my office, thank you for existing. And as a result, I realize, gosh, you know, I've really got it good. It's so insidious. This process of as soon as, soon as you've got something, it at first feels good and then you take it for granted. And if you could only appreciate the things you already had, you could really extract the joy that they can provide your life with. Same is true for children. You know there are people who dream of having children, they have them, and then before long start ignoring them and start complaining about them. But you know, imagine that tonight at bedtime. It wasn't that if tonight at bedtime, it isn't possible for you to tell your kid a bedtime story because your kid is off in the hospital or somewhere else. Then you can change your attitude dramatically in a very short period of time. So it's this whole practice of sort of imagining um, that this is the last time that you can do anything that you're doing. And so he calls this last time meditation. He says, so if I remind myself I'm talking to my friend, but I want to briefly visualize a point where this person may no longer be my friend or might no longer be in my life, I will engage with my friend more deeply in that conversation that I'm having with him or her today than if I sort of essentially took it for granted and assumed that this relationship would last forever. <clears throat> this last time meditation is a great way to put yourself in the moment. You can feel what it's like to be living in the moment. And what you do is, whatever it is you're doing, you imagine that it's the last time you'll ever do it, and for everything you do, there will be a last time that you do it. And that's simply because you're a mortal being. You will someday die. There will be a last time you eat dinner. There will be a last time you lay your head on a pillow. There will be a last breath that you take. <clears throat> now again, you don't want to go overboard on this because if that's all you think about, you may be a miserable human being. But if you occasionally allow yourself to have that thought, then it has this psychologically transformative power. And this is totally uh, a practice done in Buddhism, which is just the remembrance of death. You know, I think Stoicism and Buddhism both get the bad rap of being um, depressing, morbid practices. But interestingly, those who practice Buddhism and those who practice Stoicism, I guess, are actually quite happy. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of joy when you really can 
live in truth, when you can see what's actually going on, when you're not constantly being blindsided by your naive views, self-referential views, all the mistakes that we make about what's, what's reality, self-bias. In Buddhism, we would point out even a belief in the self is a fundamental misunderstanding of reality that brings suffering. You might think on the surface that someone who was completely aware of the absence of self, of no self, would be miserable. They've lost their life. But <clears throat> as almost everybody listens, listening to this knows, in fact, it's a portal to joy. True self is no self. Our own self is no self, as Hakuin says. <clears throat> Irvine goes on, you can take what you're doing and you can realize, you know, if this were the last time I was doing this, I would savor this thing that I'm doing. It can be something quite ordinary. You know, I find when I mow the lawn on a hot summer day, I like to remind myself that there will be a last time I mow the lawn. There's going to be a time when I'm in a nursing home somewhere and I can't mow the lawn. And if I've reached that stage, I'm going to be looking back on that moment of me out there pushing a lawnmower around and it's going to count as the good old days. If you live long enough, there's a very good chance that these are the good old days. Wouldn't it be tragic for you not to savor them while they're here? <clears throat> and just one other uh, little strategy that... Uh, I'd like to touch on <clears throat> is uh, uh, Shankar Vedanam asks him, Bill, you've come up with a clever game that you play when you're dealing with frustrations. Uh, and then they go with some examples of frustrations that this guy has, uh, has experienced, including a horrendous flight uh, where his things went wrong and he got stuck in Chicago and <clears throat> then uh, given a room in a hotel, which when he got to it was full of somebody else's clothes and basically one challenge after another. And he says, for me as a practicing Stoic, rather than, uh, rather than complaints and groans, it triggered a different response altogether. So I had this thing I call the Stoic test game. When I experience a setback, I imagine that what's happened is Stoic gods have provided me have provided me with the challenge now do i actually exist, believe stoic gods exist the answer is no they're imaginary beings next question is why would they inflict these tests on me answer because they want me to thrive because they want me to be strong and they want me to be resilient so they test me you can think of them like a good coach you know a good coach won't pamper his or her players a good coach will try to toughen up the players so they can thrive in upcoming competitions. Why do this mental game then? The answer is instead of getting angry, for instance, you can think of it as a challenge and you think I can actually do quite well in this and you kind of hijack your inner emotions. You want to get angry, but now you've got something else to focus on and that is to find a workaround for the setback and not get upset in the process. 
And of course, that approach is maturity. <clears throat> Finding a way to deal with the hand that we're dealt. Uh, anything we can do to further that is going to benefit us and benefit everybody we come into contact with. <clears throat> when we lose our shit, we not only damage ourselves, we damage everyone else. We damage our family. We damage our community. And uh, to be able to almost immediately reframe our setbacks as a challenge, a test, something that's actually going to make us stronger has a tremendous amount of power. Uh, and, and beyond that, just to be able to notice when we don't do that, notice when we sort of indulge ourselves in complaining, when we feel put upon, we feel less than. To realize that, that those thoughts aren't helpful, to realize that those thoughts aren't even true. When that becomes ingrained, when we, when we can... Uh, well, there's a Buddhist saying, liberation is being happy to see your karmic hindrances arise. That's a pretty exalted state, if you can do that in every situation. But all of us can do it to some extent. It's never a chance when we can't sort of catch ourselves and push the reset button. And somebody who's been doing Zazen, especially over a long period of time, who's really kept at it, has more and more of that ability to wake up from the dream, even when it's well-established, even when we're in full-blown anger. Sometimes we can suddenly catch ourselves and <clears throat> maybe glide back down to earth before we crash. The fact that we've been thrown, the fact that we've succumbed to anger is just another test. How are we going to deal with that? You know, everything, every the game never stops. There's never a point at which, okay, you won, you lost. Uh, we're always called upon to come into the present moment to see what needs to be done here, to be clear about what's important to us. It's not to have a score, to say, okay, I succeeded, I didn't succeed, I'm getting better, I'm getting worse. <clears throat> and uh, there's no better, I don't think there's any better uh, way to prepare the ground for that kind of change than to sit, to do zazen, to do zazen on the mat, and to do it as we go about our daily life, to make that a habit. It just changes the way that everything works. It's a gradual process. It's slow. It's a sea change. <clears throat> it's not like taking a drug. There are other tools, of course, and uh, you know I've mentioned a lot of these, several of them in the, this talk. They all work better when we have that ability to be present, have that space. 
then we can turn things around. We can see our setbacks as part of a great game. We're here to learn, not here to have everything go the way we want it. And as we know, things are never going to be the way we want. And <clears throat> the pleasure that we chase and, and secure is never going to last the way that we want it. But this present moment, this rootedness, openness, that isn't something that disappears right away. Something that actually grows over time. It's, a <clears throat> it's such a privilege to be able to be part of a community where that's what people do. It's tough for all of us to have lost the ability to be physically in that community, uh, to be able to rub shoulders and bump up against once another, one another, but we have uh, this ability through all this technology to at least come together in this way. And I think for a lot of people it's been tremendously helpful. You know, speaking for myself, um, <clears throat> I would never be sitting as much uh, as I am with the support of everyone else uh, that we still have through Zoom and in other ways. I want to close with one last, let the Buddha have the last word. Uh, this is uh, from the Dhammapada. I've read this before. The Buddha said, As irrigators lead water where they want, as archers make their arrows straight, as carpenters carve wood, the wise shape their minds. <clears throat> okay, I've definitely used up my time. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.